Hello, and welcome back to What's Next, a podcast exploring the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. Renting a house, buying a car, or getting a personal loan all require credit. But for billions of people in the developing world, many of whom only transact in cash, building a credit history hasn't been easy until now. Today, we chat with Aristotle Socrates. Yes, you heard that name right. He's head of data science at Juvo, a startup that helps mobile users in the developing world gain access to credit. Welcome to the What's Next podcast. Let's start with your name. Uh, (laughs) How did you get that name? Okay, you said we only had 45 minutes? <laughs> so uh, it's it's a long story, uh, but it's a pretty good story, actually. Uh, my parents are from India, South India. Uh, they both grew up in villages in the state of Tamil Nadu. And, the, I mean, the story goes, so it comes from my paternal grandfather. And uh, he, he was a farmer. And uh, his father died when he was six years old. And so it was just him and his mother. And they were getting by. And out of nowhere, um, when he was around 20 years old, he decided that he wanted to educate himself. So he he sold two out of four of the cows that they had, you know, against his mother's wishes, and took that money to go to a town pretty far away. And after that, he came back, and then he ended up going to medical school. Ended up getting his bachelor's, uh, to ended up becoming a school teacher and resided in that village, you know, his whole life. It was impossible to get him out. I've only seen him in that village. And, uh, so in order to distinguish himself from, uh, his fellow villagers, he named his first son Socrates. And that's my father. And so then his second son, he named him Aristotle. And then his third son, he named him Archimedes. And so, uh, so that's sort of the tradition in my family. And, you know, my grandfather is extremely, extremely brilliant man. I mean, I've worked with a lot of smart people and he's a really, really smart guy. So therefore, my name became Aristotle Socrates. So I don't think my parents fully understood the repercussions <laughs> of that name. And so, you know, so here I am. That's probably the twelve thousandth time I've explained wow. that. <laughs> wow, that, that seems like a lot to live up to, though. It is. It is. It's a, a little bit of a a weight to carry on your shoulders, but on net, on average, it's more of a a plus than a minus. Okay, um, <laughs> that's that's incredible. So uh, so tell me a little bit about your background. Um, you know, you studied physics and astronomy, I believe. Yeah. So I have a PhD in physics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, and I was a theoretical astrophysicist for quite a while. So how did you <laughs> find yourself doing data science and find yourself with Juvo? Yeah, so it's, it's actually a pretty common story nowadays. You know, there's a lot of talented people in physics, astronomy, biochemistry, applied mathematics, mathematics, who are getting PhDs and postdocs and, and get really great jobs out of their graduate programs. But, you know, the the ability to carry on your your passions or the ability to conduct really original research that's creative and fulfilling become less and less as time goes on in your career it's just getting kind of harder and harder to have a really uh fulfilling uh life in academia so as a result you know like i i thought look there in california there's this new field called data science and uh so i figured out how to use a computer and we we moved out to california and then 
I got my first job in data science. Then one thing led to another. I met the CEO and he he told me the story of, of what they're doing and the, the core idea behind Juvo. And I thought it was the best idea I've ever heard, at least in the Bay Area. And so from that, I was like, okay, I'll, 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 I'll take a chance. All right. Well, let's talk about that. So let's talk about Juvo and the mission and um, yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. So how I, I pose it to people is and how I think about it is if I were an alien <laughs> and I were to come to the Earth and see the situation that half of the planet is underbanked, which means that they don't have access to elementary financial services such as credit uh, or savings accounts, um, how would I fix that quickly? And then if I were an alien and the, the laws of intergalactic or interstellar economics are the same as they are here on Earth. God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the basic laws of, of uh, interstellar economics are the same as here on Earth. I would ask myself, what, do you, what are the necessary elements to have a fully functional economic system? And, and then, you know, you, you would think, okay, well, if you go back to the, the foundational works in economics by people like Karl Marx and Adam Smith and David Ricardo and John Stuart Mill, they're looking at the same problem from a little bit different perspectives, but they all agree more or less on things that are very important. That for a fully functioning or highly functioning economy, you need two elements. Uh, and the first element is capital, which is pretty obvious to understand uh, why you need capital. But the second element, which is a little trickier to understand, is you need information and you need organized information. And the reason why you need organized information is so that each individual stakeholder in an economy can make a rational decision, right? And so, <clears throat> in other words, so financial institutions need, for example, organized information about the population in aggregate to make just to construct the financial products to begin with, they also need organized information about each individual to know whether or not to make a decision about that individual, what, to give the person a loan or not to give a person a loan. So we got to get a hold of people really fast. And from what I was just talking about, we got to get a hold of data on these people really fast. And, um, and so as a result, what we do is we partner with mobile network operators in the developing world. So um, what does that actually look like? How do you turn these mobile users into individuals with a financial identity? So say you're, you're, you're in Jakarta, Indonesia, and you're walking around and you come to a zero balance, you go to the kiosk associated with some mobile network operator. And you give them five bucks, and then they give you a scratch card, and then you scratch off the scratch card, and there's a pin code. You send an SMS with that pin code in it, and then uh, the, your, your account gets charged up for three days, a week, two weeks, a month, etc. Okay. Now, when you come back to a zero balance, it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a pack bus. It doesn't matter if you're at a meeting. It doesn't matter if you're at home watching your sick kids. It doesn't matter if there's a typhoon outside. You have to go back and get another scratch card. And that's a really crappy user experience. And so as a result, people are off air five or six days out of the month. And so what we do from a physical point of view to help resolve this problem on the road for making a foundation for the next, what we can, would consider the, the next financial system for 3 billion people is from a physical point of view, what we do is we integrate our data systems with the billing systems of mobile network operators. And so when a user comes to a low balance, we have the ability to predict that. And then when we predict that, 
what we do is we send them an SMS that says, hi, we noticed you're at a low balance. Why don't you download the Juvo app, which is co-branded with the mobile network operator? Upon doing so, you qualify for an airtime loan. And so that's the entry point into finance. And so after they pay these loans back, we then give them bigger ones and then bigger ones and then bigger ones to the point where we're, we're giving out about a month to six weeks worth of airtime for a typical person at a pop. Um, at the end of that trajectory, we then offer them access to additional financial services, which can cross the carrier society boundary. Uh, that are provided to them by additional financial partners, thereby it's more or less creating a mechanism for establishing credit at scale. Okay. So first of all, when we talk about the underbanked, mm-hmm. right, like let's talk about just that that one piece in and of itself. Like why do those people have trouble getting access to capital or credit? Right. So, you know, you built your credit. I built my credit. Uh, everybody builds their credit in the United States more or less without thinking about it. And what what basically is in place that we don't really know or really see is a pretty extensive data infrastructure. And so the underbanked people in the world, you know, it's a viewpoint of Juvo that they're living lives for the most part very similar to the people in the United States. Uh, they're consuming services like utilities, cellular services, uh, transportation, et cetera, et cetera, all very similarly to people in the United States. And the one thing that's lacking is the data infrastructure to collect that transactional history, aggregate it, uh, and then serve up that information to stakeholders in a, a timely way. So the next question is basically, so so what's lacking in that data perspective? Is it just that those people are paying mostly in cash? Why are my transactions being uh, aggregated in a way that gives someone the ability to create a credit score for me um, but folks in these other markets don't have the same capability. Well, I mean, it, it's a it's a complicated complicated question. The data infrastructure that is in place in the United States for aggregating data to collect payment history and transaction history and individuals has been has been there. Uh, in one way or another for nearly 100 years. And so people 50, 60, 70 years ago were establishing their credit, and it was mostly all cash-based. Most people didn't have credit cards. But there was a concerted effort to to collect transactional data uh, in analog and aggregate that in analog because financial in- institutions found it extremely lucrative to, to get a hold of that information. So it's just in, in, in the developing world, there just hasn't, you know, the economies haven't gotten to the point where financial institutions have come, you know, to the realization that, you know, it's, it's that lucrative to do that. Um, and so what we're doing at Juo is, is realizing that we can sidestep or circumvent that by establishing people's financial identities, by using a, a data infrastructure system that's already there in place, cellular networks that has absolute penetration. So we talk about the, um, from the consumer standpoint, the benefit is they don't go offline. They don't, you know, lose their access to the communication infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, what do your partners, these uh, telecom operators, get out of this? Right. So, like as I said before, they are, are solved. We're solving a very important problem for them, which is 
the the user has no affinity typically to any of the mobile network operators and if you're if you don't have any credit because when you're a prepaid user you can go to one mobile network operator to another mobile network operator the services are all going to be the same a, an easy way to understand that is is if you drive a car in the United States for example um where was the last place you got gasoline who knows? You know, like, I don't know where the Shell, Chevron, who knows, right? And that's because the product is the same everywhere. The price is the same everywhere. The reason why the gas companies aren't suffering from a pricing war against each other is because the oil companies have an agreement with each other uh, to, to maintain a certain level of, of, of price. So, so the mobile network operators, what they're getting out of it, therefore, is a way of avoiding the pricing war with one another of trying to steal relatively low value customers uh, in turn making their relatively low uh, customers that they're stealing from everybody else uh, into high value customers. And so they don't have to reacquire somebody multiple times. They acquire them once, they become a Juve user and they they just stay in that network. So it makes their business a lot happier. All right. So there are a lot of other companies out there that are working on this problem um, of helping the underbank get access to to credit. Uh, so how is Juvo thinking about this differently or, or what do you do differently? Well, I think they're doing a lot of great work. They have really talented people working there and, and there a lot of them are doing really, really well. Uh, and, and some of them are not just doing it in the developing world. They're doing it in the United States. You know, there's many people in the United States that are underbanked or unbanked, you know, like most, a significant fraction of Oakland, for example, I, w- I would consider a credit desert. Um, so, so I think the difference in approach is that we are grafting a, a credit system on top of very typical everyday behavior. So people's consumption of mobile network operator services. And, at you know, compared to the United States, that's exactly how we build our credit in the United States. You go to college, you get a credit card, you, you get your first job, you, your parents co-sign the apartment, uh, you rent, you, 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 you get a car, you have a, a, a car loan for that car, and you're not thinking, oh, you know what, when I'm 38 years old, I'm going to... This my my credit rating is going to be seven eighty four, and I'm going to be able to get a house in Westchester. Nobody nobody thinks that, right? It just happens naturally. And so, from from Juvo's point of view, well, well, what we're saying is like people in the developing world are just like that. And the one thing that we can help provide in the developing world is not really uh, a you know like a hand to a helping hand, just basically an infrastructure to collect their good behavior. Or it's really not even good behavior. It's typical, boring, normal behavior. And typical, normal, and boring, if you're a financial institution, is good. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So um, one of the other things that you are able to do with this is sort of walk people up this ladder of progressive finance. Um, 
curious where that goes and for those who have been using Juvo for a while, like what does that enable in the long term? Right. Great question. And, you know, just to, to give a little prologue to the answer, you know, what we're trying to do is establish credit for 3 billion people, you know, within a time span of 10 years, right? That, that is a tough problem. You know, it's a tougher problem than I've, you know, I, I worked on some tough problems in astrophysics. It's tougher than those problems. And so there's probably a few ways to go about it. But how we are going about it is sort of step by step. So the initial plan is to create sort of uh, a reservoir within any mobile network operator's walled garden of users, and it's a significant number of users, uh, a a reservoir of users who have a, a transaction history, like say people who have taken out 10, 15 airtime loans, um, of significant value. So when we are progressively stepping them up, we're deliberately stepping them up to b- basically a month's worth to six weeks worth of, of airtime, which really distinguishes us from a lot of competitors in the mobile network operator space because that means we're taking on a lot of risk. And so, you know, a lot of what my team is managing is risk, is how to deal with, with all that risk and, and make sure that we are, are in good standing, you know, on our balance sheet, et cetera. Okay. And when you, when you look at the way that these markets work, is the data or the model replicable across different markets and different carriers or, mm-hmm. you know, does one market have uh, particularly unique characteristics that might fall outside of the model in another market? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. And that was the assumption to begin with when we were doing this. And it was part of, you know, some of the concern I had about, you know, whether or not Juvo is scalable. So the first carrier we ever really launched the hardcore full platform on where we're doing everything and all the risk management and the notifications and, and this and that was in the Caribbean with a carrier. Um, and there's 14 countries that we did. And we had to roll this out in like six months in 14 countries. Now, I'm, these are small countries. Like one of them is Montserrat. And I think there's there's more people who live on my block than in Montserrat. But um, these countries have real differences, you know, from an economic point of view. So, for example, Jamaica, the per capita GDP is four or $5,000 per year. Whereas in the British Virgin Islands, the per capita GDP is more like $40,000 per year, if my memory serves me correctly. And so what we found is that people, as I mentioned before, people spend very similar amounts on, on airtime as they, uh, when scaled to their income, or at least the per capita GDP in all these countries is, and it's a, it's a, it's a, a linear relation with a constant of proportionality of about 1%. And, um, so what that meant is that we could equate convenience. What, well, what does convenience really mean? It's really time, right? And so we, we looked at the data in all these different countries, and, and it's, we've looked at it in many other countries as well. And people top up about once a week. And so that means that they're doing that 50 times a year. All right. So when you say 50 top-ups a year, um, what does that mean for Juvo? Uh, what does it mean for the product? And um, how does it help you reach users? So, um, you know, if any chore takes like 20 or 15, 20, 30 minutes or whatever, and you're doing that 50 times a year, well, then you equate that into hours. That's like 20 or 25 hours. So you're, you're queuing in line the same amount of time that you spent working to earn the money to consume the service you're queuing in line. 
right? And that was, and that's universally true across all these countries. So what we did is we therefore scaled our products and, our, and the timing of our notifications to per capita GDP. And what what we found is when we did this, uh, well, the prediction was that people would descend the credit ladder at the same rate if we scaled everything to per capita GDP. If, and it's a very important if, if people in poor countries are just as financially reliable with respect to their income as people in wealthier countries. When we actually did this, the uniformity uh, between all, all these 14 countries was extremely striking. So I think that that is something like extremely interesting that Juvo has discovered. And I think it, it's something that really uh, has could have very significant philosophical impact almost. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I never... I never would have imagined that that would be true. Mm -hmm. And I think it really changes a lot of assumptions that um, people in financial markets uh, probably have about the developing world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so look, like like I said, I'm the son of an Indian villager, right? And so uh, I know what it's like there. I've been in that village a lot of times. So uh, people there are really a lot like people here. And when, especially if you, after you spend a little bit of time there, you kind of forget that you're there, you know, and, you know, the same kind of human interactions that are happening here are kind of happening there. And, and it turns out, at least from 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 Juvo's point of, or at least what the experiments that we have conducted, that from a financial point of view, if you give people opportunity, independent of how wealthy they are, they they take it and they act they act good. They're they're good actors right. for the most part. Um, so that's the central bet of Juvo. Like if Juvo really wants to be, uh, uh, you know, the the most transformative or a very transformative company, uh, then that that bet has to be true. If it's not true, then then you know Juvo is not going to be as, as successful as it could be. Right. Well, what's one controversial opinion that you have that you feel really strongly about? Well, I think within the the realm of data science, um, and I'm not sure if it's controversial, but it's not really spoken that often. But a lot of people who I respect, uh, prominent people in the field of data science that I respect, uh, also kind of secretly hold this opinion, which is, you know, what 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 makes data science interesting and what makes it profitable and what what it does to accelerate uh, the success of companies is, is not necessarily the advent of smarter algorithms. Um, but it's the realization that you can take data from different but relatively obvious sources and convert them into stuff that you can insert into products uh, that just add value where you wouldn't have been able to do that before where the type of technologies that we're using – uh, didn't exist. And so it's, it's pretty simple. And, and actually my viewpoint, you know, like I have a background in theoretical astrophysics and I actually think data science from a sciencey point of view is, is most like, um, at least in the technology sector, it's most like observational astronomy where you're just, you know, like observers in astronomy, uh, who I, I, I never actually took an observation <laughs> before. I, I, my dad got me a telescope in fourth grade and I kind of use it a little bit. You know, I'm not the type of person who goes out in the cold at night and looks at, at space. Uh, but 
But, uh, you know, like the, the observers that I know, they'll go fly to Hawaii and go to the top of the mountain where there's huge telescopes and they'll just look out in outer space and just look at stuff and just take data night after night, night after night, night after night. And, and what they do is they take the data and then they, they clean it up and they reduce it and they publish it in papers. And they do that over and over and over. And then when you read their papers over and over, one paper in itself is not going to tell you that. But once you read a lot of them together, you start to get a picture of what's going on. And there's no underlying theory you know, per se, if you're kind of just like pushing the edge, looking at data for the first time and just exploring it uh, without any uh, preconceived notions about it. And I think I think that's that's, you know, where you can you can have the most impact in data science. You know, uh, that's the approach, I think, at, at Juvo, where I discovered we've made the most impact within the organization um, from a, a technology and product point of view. Okay. I'm curious uh, when you think about data science uh-huh. and data science as a profession, yeah. um, there's this entire field that didn't exist maybe a decade ago, mm. or maybe it was called something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious why that is. Mm. Is it just that we have so much data now mm. to analyze mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we need scientists for it? Or, mm. <laughs> or what is it? I, I actually think it's a terrible name. I think data science is a terrible name. And that's maybe my most controversial thought is that data science is a terrible name because you can't have science without data. It's like saying, uh, logic math. You know, it doesn't, it, it, you can't have math without logic, right? Um, or it's like fact history. Like it, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so I think maybe a better, a better name for, for data science would be, uh, uh, quantitative technology, because what it is is, you know, the, on the East Coast, it, you know, at all the Goldman Sachs and the J.P. Morgans of the world, you got, you know, other Aristotle Socrates is in there coding away, uh, writing C plus plus code, doing quantitative finance, you know, and so that they're in the finance industry and they're being quantitative and they're using math and they're using computers in in a little bit of different way, but it's more or less the same thing. I don't think you need to be a scientist. I I, I definitely don't think you need a PhD to. To, to do data science, I think what you need is an open mind, and I think you need to have a little bit of math skills. And but you really need to have the ability to to grow your math skills. It turns out you could also grow into a really great and powerful scientist because all really great and powerful scientists didn't have PhDs at one point, right? PhD is just a piece of paper, right? So, um, so I, I think having that open mind and just coming above a certain kind of technical threshold. Um, having a little bit of experience of knowing how to, to visualize and plot data and phrase questions quantitatively is something that you learn kind of it's on the job training. And if you're, if you have the right mentors, you know, I had a lot of great mentors. So if you have the right mentors, um, you, you figure, you'll figure out how to do that just by kind of imitating them. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to wrap. Okay. Okay, well, thank you, Ari, for joining us today on the podcast. Okay, thanks. It's great. Thanks again for listening to What's Next. We're releasing a new episode every other week this summer, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. Next time, we'll chat with Ronnie Sternberg from our portfolio company, SafetyK, which is an SDK management platform for mobile developers. 
I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. And this episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King and Janaki Mehta with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pot People. If you have any questions or suggestions for us, we'd love to hear from you. And Samsung Next is always on the lookout for brilliant new companies to team up with. So get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or shoot us an email at podcast at samsungnext.com. Until next time.